Hey everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job from London. Welcome to London. Dude. What's the vibes like? This is so cool. We've had a great time in London. It's awesome. Um, all that. I have to start here though. The accent. Yeah. Where in London is it? Because Laura, the girlfriend sitting off screen, tells me I have to learn how to know the regional accent. So okay. it's not just good enough for me to say, outside America, that yeah. was the accent. So, so my accent in yes. particular, so I'm not from London, I'm from a place called Essex, which I think Timothy Chamelet said on TikTok a few days ago that it was a really uh, sexy accent, the Essex accent. But he also said Hull was a sexy accent, and so maybe he was just trolling. Really? But yeah, so yeah. I, I'm Essex, I'm east of so, London. So how far from here? Um, it's about half an hour riding on a train because we have some good public transport. Yeah. But yeah, about 40 miles. This is one of my favorite things. So you guys built 90% of your train tracks back in the 1850s. Victorian times. When, yeah, you yeah. had this railroad bubble. Yeah. And one of the Rothschilds is reported as saying there are three paths to ruin, wine, women, and engineers. The first two are the more fun. But the last one, most certain. So, yeah. Yeah, a lot more longevity in the last one. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. So you're from Essex. This is what I don't understand. This is where we need to start. Okay. Let's level set here. You are doing fashion, and now all of a sudden you're saving the world by generating electricity. Walk, mm. walk me through that. Mm. So... I mean, fashion is just one of the areas I found myself working in. I've also gone door to door selling double glazing. I've worked in McDonald's. I've been in the Home Depot equivalent. I think I, my there was no linear trajectory of uh, of career with me. It's been very much just making a buck um, throughout those kind of teen formative years. Um, and I sort of fell into, into fashion. And I, as I said to you, I don't tend to know how to dress myself very well. So I definitely wasn't in I, fashion. I obviously don't You do can take well it either. off. Oh, God, just. Here, we're not doing a shirtless uh, podcast. Okay. That would set the ratings that's, back. That's yeah. who's waiting to come in next. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So no, I, I didn't, I've not known what I wanted to do for, for most of my life. And I think that's something a lot of people can relate to. You kind of come through a very archaic education system and you kind of take jobs that come up and that's certainly what I did. I never wanted to work in fashion, but uh, after university, I couldn't fathom anything other than finding some full-time work. I wasn't interested in getting more degrees or masters. I wasn't strictly academic. So I, I just got into digital marketing because it was the hot thing at the time. Thought, oh, wow, I'm, I'm quite good at marketing. So Keep on going with that. And um, I got headhunted for Urban Outfitters. So that at the time, being in like your early 20s, getting a job at Urban Outfitters, that's, yeah, that's pretty that's cool. cool. That's pretty cool, I'll right? I'll give you that. That's in the cool. head office. And you know, I, I, as I said earlier, I have a face for radio, so they weren't sticking me like Abercrombie. You weren't a fit. model. No, not okay, a model. Just caveat. Uh, you know, 
we're talking nerdy marketing stuff here. Um, so I was doing that for a while, and then uh, and then a big luxury fashion uh, company came along, and they wanted me, and I was kind of pretty stunned. I mean, like my mid twenties, and I've got these companies I never thought would have an appetite for my skills, um, wanting me to work for them. And I think that started to build some confidence that just because I didn't know what I wanted to do didn't mean that I wasn't good at stuff. Um, and then the, the, the big life change happened in, in, that, in that luxury fashion company. And uh, that's where I decided, wow, I can, I think I can do anything. And, and that's what led me onto this path. Yeah. And, and tell, so what is that moment? I mean, did you read something about it? Meet somebody? Yeah. I mean, there was one book that was very formative. Uh, it was Abundance by Peter H. Diamandis and Stephen Kotler. Um, and I think it's because at the time and still today, you've so much negativity is thrown at you in the media of, how the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And there's, exactly. you know, what is there to be? If you just kind of look at BBC every day or CNN or whatever, it's not a huge amount to really feel that positive about. Uh, so I started read, you know, started reading to find a, you know, a, a tonic um, in, in technology. And uh, I, I must have read Abundance three or four times cover to cover. And then I downloaded it onto, I had these really nerdy headphones that I could go swimming with that kind of wrap around your, the back right. of your head. And I kind of put the book on there and I must've listened to it probably 20, 30 times. And, uh, you know, they're probably, if you'd started a, a section of the book, I could probably finish the sentence of, uh, of the rest of it. Hey, hey, sweetie, what was the book you, um, uh, gave me to read that had all the facts about the world on it. Factfulness. Have you read Factfulness yet? I haven't read it's it. It's the same kind of premise. It's a doctor. He worked in various third world countries. And he basically just laid out a bunch of facts about the world that you get from the UN. I mean, so not anything controversial. But his whole point is, you know, 90% of the world now lives above the poverty line as opposed to 150 years ago, it was 10%. Yeah. And what he's done, his twist on it is he created 13 questions and he goes out and he gives everybody these 13 questions and sees how, how often they get it right. And routinely he's at a room full of investment bankers. He's at, you know, parliament, things like that. And people are getting 10 and 15% of the questions right. And it's stuff like, you know, how many, what's the average number years of education do women get worldwide? And, you know, he'll give A, B, and C. So, I mean, just random selection means you should get three or four of the questions right. And notoriously, people don't. It's because, yeah. and one of his things is, the media makes the world seem so bad mm. and just so horrible. But uh, factfulness is great. It sounds a lot like uh, Stephen Pinkner's work, The Better Angels of Our Nature. I think he has a TED Talk for anyone who wants just a 20-minute a kind of slide-by-slide. Slide. We're in a much better place than we were. But we also have to recognize that there are you know, a subsect of the world's population who things aren't great for. 
and the, you know tropical islands being one of them who are fighting against petro states in negotiation halls as we speak in dubai right now um about you know they feel like they are negotiating their their survival um they don't have the same abundance that a lot of us kind of come to enjoy as uh, just part of life in the in the in the developed world well and i never really thought of that you know because i mean you get a tropical island it's a nice resort i mean that's the american way of of experiencing it and so until i started flipping through reading about your company i'd never really thought of it that way but you're right i mean you're out there on an island that makes sense and from texas you enjoy really some of the best energy costs in the world right, right. You, know, you truly have energy abundance now these islands because they're so dependent on fossil fuel imports they're paying anywhere between four and ten times the unit cost per kilowatt hour that you are in texas but they sit in this untapped battery of solar heat energy which is the ocean and if they just had the equipment to extract that solar heat energy to provide baseload power they're going to half their energy costs overnight and it's going to create a very different future for those islands. So get me get me from that reading the book of abundance to tapping the potential of the ocean. How did you make that leap because at the end of the day until you liked a tweet of mine the other day and I just looked at your bio and I think I pinged you on Twitter and said, dude, come on the podcast, talk about it. I had no idea there was geothermal in the ocean. I thought you and I were going to be talking about wave energy. Yeah, no, I mean, so where to start? Uh, so abundance, it, it was like having, because I was listening, I was like putting this on my headphones every single day as I walked to and from the, the office in West London. I'm living in Maida Vale. I'm in my mid-20s. I'm earning really well, uh, but I'm finding it kind of soul-destroying. I'm working these crazy Black Fridays in the office sometimes till like 4 a.m. because we've just got to sell more Victoria Beckham dresses. And at the same time, I've kind of got this book, which I've started reading as a hobby, telling me the, the greatest opportunity to develop technology for the rising billion in the world is right now. So I'm sort of pulling a thread, researching in my spare time. What? Yeah. There you go. Oh, good. That, the power that you just had to shut them up was amazing. <laughs> I am so appreciative. I, I walked past a free Palestine march up the road and I was like, I hope they're not coming near the studio. <laughs> Oh, no good. worries at all. Yeah, so I'll start from the um, yeah. Just keep going. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So um, I doubt we even edit that out. Okay, I mean, it's wild. I mean, people actually find the behind the scenes stuff kind of interesting. So. I, yeah, I guess in New York, you probably can't record anywhere without a, a siren passing. That's probably true. Yeah. So, but abundance is kind of I've started reading it as a hobby, and it's it's planting this seed in my head that. There's this rising, rising billion coming online and some of the greatest innovators and technologists, they don't always have the you know, purely academic backgrounds to become 
you know, who they are. And there's, there's a great story um, about stone soup. And I'm really worried that if I try to tell it right now, that I'll butcher it to pieces. And someone who actually knows the story of stone soup will be very angry in the comments. Do you know what stone soup means? I don't know. No? So fire away. Okay, so stone soup's the, this idea or, or like anecdote of, you know, you've got these two guys stumbling upon a medieval village and uh, they're, they're super hungry, right? right. Um, but they, they haven't got anything to really offer. So they start going door to door and um, they're just asking the community if they can, they start at the first door and they're like, hey, um, we're making, uh, okay, I, I've, I've realized where it is now. They don't have anything, but they pick up these stones off the floor and they go door to door and they say, hey, we're making stone soup. Do you want some? And people are like, what the fuck is this? Stone? Right, what, what's, yeah. what's this stone soup? They're like, well, look, we just need a, a cauldron. Have you got a a cauldron and uh, come with us. We're going to make some stone soup. And they go to the next door. And they're like, we're making, we're making stone soup. We've got this cauldron. We've got our stones. Uh, could you lend us some potatoes? And then to the next door, they get some carrots. And then to the next door, they get some cabbage. stock or, or cabbage or yeah. whatever. And then at the end, they're creating this stone soup. And everyone, all the village people are, you know, like really... Excited, it, about really it. excited about the stone Heck soup. Yeah. But all they—they they just started with a with a bunch of stones, and I found that a uh, quite an inspiring story. It made me realize that with a commercial, with sales and marketing background, that if you can just bring together a kind of a coalition of the willing, you can actually sort of do anything. Uh, and that was one of the the big lessons that made me realize I didn't need to go and get a a PhD in something to, to do something really cool. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's amazing how many, when you actually look back at all these great entrepreneurs and stuff, yes, Bill Gates, Bill Gates could write code, but at the end of the day, he made all his money because his dad said, oh, you're talking to IBM, give it to him for free. Just say you have to be in every IBM machine. I mean, that's why he's rich, not because he wrote yeah. great code. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, I, have no, I, I, I have a privileged background in the sense that my parents are kind of together and worked all of their lives, but no, I don't come from any riches or, or there's no nepotism to call it. Like my dad ran a, was a manager of a stationary shop growing up. My mum worked at the electronics store part-time. So I didn't have any favors to call him building this. And, uh, Maybe we'd be a bit further ahead if, uh, so if I get, had that. So take me this. All right. So good career, marketing, also realize, okay, I can pull this together. I don't have to be the ultimate expert. Again, I'm an energy guy. I'm a 30-some-odd-year 30, 30 energy guy. I didn't even know geothermal in the ocean existed. Where'd you find that? Did you read about it? See a story on TV yeah, telly so or? Back to abundance, it's all about energy, food, and water. These right. are the places that you know you want to focus if you want to make change in in the next kind of decades. So I was initially really captivated by water and desalination. Okay. Um, I joined a, a water charity um, from Arizona called Water is Life. We headed down to Ghana. I fundraised, giving out these um, nano bucket filters that would for five the equivalent of like five cents per bucket 
would give these guys clean water for five years, which they wouldn't have otherwise had. So that was a super insightful experience about the power of water. So at the same time, I ran a blog called futuredesalination.com. And I just kind of stayed with my finger on the pulse as to what's happening in the, you know, how can I make my stone soup in the, in the water space? So who's doing cool stuff? And there were actually some students from Harvard who had a electrodialysis um, solar unit that, uh, you know, they were post-grads and they, they had some properties about that that suggested it was going to be more promising than the traditional reverse osmosis, uh, which would be, you know, fossil fueled power. So I thought, mm, okay, how can we, you know, where's the, where's the commercial application there? So I started calling up um, places in Africa where there were you know, businesses. And I started with uh, Zanzibar. And I think the only reason I started with Zanzibar is that there was a, a world tourism uh, conference at the Expo Center down in, in East London. And I just basically walked around trying to find someone who ran a business in Africa. And I, I found a guy who ran a resort. And I said to him, do you have water problems? And he said, yeah, I do. It's, it's dirty. It's expensive. I have to run this really energy intensive system. And I pitched this idea that the Harvard guys were, were working on. And he was like, well, oh, that sounds awesome. Do you want some land? And I was like, yeah, yeah, that would be, uh, that would be pretty good. Um, and then I went back to the Harvard guys and I was like, I've got some land in Zanzibar to do, uh, to do a pilot. And they were like, who the fuck are you? Yeah, yeah, right. why, why, why are you talking to us? Hey, um, hey, mom, dad said it was all right. Hey, dad, mom <laughs> said it was all right. Yeah. But I, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm just being quite bold and just trying to try and figure stuff out. And so, so I'm, I'm doing this water research and then I hear about as a method of desalination, something called ocean thermal energy conversion. And I'm like, what, what the hell is that? Uh, and sure, uh, sure, it's OTEC. And um, so I started pulling at the thread on that. And I was like, Lockheed Martin are doing ocean energy. And I was pulling further and further. And I was like, there's, there's a plant in Hawaii that is using that temperature difference and they're, they're grid connected. This is, this is pretty cool. So I had learned from my experience with the desalination guys not to ring them up and say, hey, I've got some land in Zanzibar. Do you want to do a pilot? Instead, I contacted some of the engineers at this Hawaii plant and was like, this looks pretty cool. Uh, you know, I'd, can, can, can we have a chat? And I was part off to, uh, to one of the Brits that worked for the company who happened to be coming back to, to London for uh, another expedition at, actually at the same place the tourism one was. This was Oceanology International in, in London. Uh, so I met up with one of the guys from this, this OTEC plant um, and we just, you know, we started, to, we started to nerd out and I kind of put to him, Lockheed and everyone's going about OTEC in this, in, in this sort of massive way that is going to be a 50 or 100 megawatt plant. And does that figure? And he was like, no, it doesn't really figure, but they hoover up 
DOE grants so they can you know, they can spend millions on on research and development. It doesn't have to deliver anything practical. And I thought, oh shit, that's uh that's pretty bad, isn't it? Like what what if we actually had a business plan that could use this technology, building on what's already been demonstrated, and actually, you know, solve some real world problems. Um, and that's that was where Global Otech was born. So tell me actually what this process is, because I was trying to read about it. You made actually a cool little clip that's on YouTube that people can go look up, and I'll tell you what, we'll scrape it and throw it at the uh, at the end of this podcast. But how does the process actually work? It's an organic Rankine cycle. So it's, it's essentially, it's the same fundamental heat engine cycle that we are producing steam and turning a mechanical shaft. The way that it works in the ocean is that we're pumping warm surface seawater into a heat exchanger. Okay. That first heat exchanger is evaporating a working fluid in a closed loop system. So that could be ammonia, it could be a refrigerant, it could be propane, whatever. So that at 27 degrees centigrade, which is, I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit for your audience, uh, but that's that warm surface seawater is pretty consistent around the tropics at that temperature all year round. So great, we can, if, if we have access to that warm surface seawater, we can evaporate a working fluid. If we can evaporate, if we can create vapor, we can run a turbine. What we, the next thing we need is cold deep water, uh, which we have in abundance in the tropical parts of the ocean. And if we can get water that's around four degrees centigrade and lift that up into a second heat exchanger, we can then condense that vapor back into a liquid. So we have a cycle that's being run by the natural environment that can produce energy 24 hours a day all year round, Say, solving a lot of the challenges I think conventional renewables face with scaling. Yeah, so I, I, I Googled it while you were talking. Uh, 27 degrees Celsius is about 80 degrees Fahrenheit. And so making the steam and steam turns turbine, we've been doing that for a long time. The, uh, so it's fascinating. So, and I read someplace that the Cubans built one of these in like 1930. So yeah, let's do a history lesson. Yeah. Then. So the first time the world hears about the theory of OTEC is in Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. So Captain, Captain Nemo is theorizing that, that that delta T, that temperature differential could generate energy. And this is like 1881. A few years later, a, a French physicist named Jack Darsonville comes up with the, the first practical system of, of how that would actually work. And I think it was in a paper called White Coal. Uh, yeah, I don't know the, the story behind that. Uh, so he, one of his students in 1930, a guy called George Claude, he's in Cuba and he's putting one of these deep ocean water pipes into the ocean there. And for the first time, an actual physical OTEC plant in the ocean produces a, a kilowatt, <coughs> a kilowatt hour. So we're, that, that's 1930, right? That's 100 years ago. Unfortunately, that uh, system 
gets destroyed by a a storm. And oh, and then OTEC development is is sort of quiet for for a while. It's not until Jimmy Carter, 1979, passes the Ocean Thermal Energy Act. It's like 60 years ago, the US is passing an act for ocean thermal energy. And really the the center of excellence is is Kihole Point um, off um, Kona in Hawaii. And this is where you've got a mini OTEC barge and then a larger heat exchanger test facility called the OTEC one. And you know, these guys are in their Hawaiian shirts, you know, hitting hammers on barges is, you know, it's 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 refreshing compared to some of the health and safety you see today. And they're deploying these cold water pipes. They're connecting them to platforms and they're generating power. Unfortunately, in 1981, Ronald Reagan comes in and pulls all of the renewable energy funding. I think there's some story that people like to say that Jimmy Carter put some solar panels on the roof of the White House and then Reagan comes in and rips them off. I, I don't know if there's credibility in it that sounds story. like something we would do. Yeah. <laughs> well, it also, you know, the history of the energy business tracks when energy's cheap, all these type technologies just get dumped to the side, right? Because, you know, if oil prices are are really, really low, we don't need renewables. We don't need solar and all. And it's taken really kind of the external pressure of climate change to, to put it on a path to have some real research development dollars. That's exactly what happened. So Carter was responding to expensive oil and Reagan was reacting to, we've got cheap oil now. And so one of the inflection points for OTEC today is that cheap oil is, is pretty much history, right? But especially for these islands, you know, they're, they're looking at a pretty flat uh, or, or an increasing trajectory for oil prices. They're, I don't think there's any belief now that they're going to be going back to be generating, I don't know, 10 cents per kilowatt hour. They're, they're in firmly baked into the 40 cents now. And you also have energy security being priced in because the- COVID, Or at least thought about. I or mean, at least, yeah. or at least, yeah. which, you know- Different, depending where you are in the world, depends how much you have to think about energy security all the time. You know, being in a, you know, having some solar power in California versus your natural gas in Texas. And then you're, there's a, an, an island in the Maldives whose owner called me up the other day. He's paying $1.38 per kilowatt hour at the moment. His small resorts energy bills are a quarter of a million dollars every month holy cow yeah that's crazy the one of the things we did the other podcast i do is big digital energy yeah and the girlfriend used to gently rattle our cage when we would say things like well europe does this europe does that she her point which she was correct is you know we're not a unit block we're 30 different countries we have different energy needs we have different energy resources and so we started deep diving each country um, each week on the podcast, and we, we'd go through England, we'd go through France, we'd go through various places. And the thing I, I found fascinating that I'd never put together, and you're going to say, well, no sh shit, Sherlock, but 
France went all nuclear in the 70s and believe it or not, did it in the right way. They kind of chose one design. Let's just going to replicate that design. I think the cost of building multiple plants in France, you know, fell kind of two thirds, three quarters, whatever you want to want to say over time. And they generate electricity that's slightly below average for all of all of Europe. And it's a battery. I mean, they export it to Germany. They export it underneath the channel. And um, so what's been interesting about the European experiment with renewables and the like is y'all had that battery, if you will, in France that had dispatchable power that kind of allowed the Germans to get away with what they did, et cetera. And so, you know, the, the, the other thing uh, that's uh, popping up these days is just the the need to have dispatchable power versus versus intermittent power because I mean for years I've always said the most effective thing the environmentalists did is they convinced the world that that uh, there was no difference between dispatchable and intermittent power. Yeah, you know? right. And a lot of people are kind of calling. I say a lot of people. Sorry a very kind of insane subsect of society is calling for the heads of oil and gas executives, but no one's weighing in the damage that environmentalists have done by blocking the advancement of nuclear energy. Oh yeah, totally. The, uh, they, you know, it's funny. Have you ever heard Joe Rogan's take on nuclear energy? I no. His take is, is something to the effect of it's not nuclear. That's the problem. It's the fact it was built in the 70s. And just everything man produced in the 70s suck. 70s vintage cars sucked. I mean, just take on down the list. The problem was we couldn't build yeah. stuff in the 70s. And so you would think that's behind us. So, okay. So geothermal, oceaneering, what do we call it? We call it OTEC, but OTEC. maybe it's got a bit of a branding issue because when people type in OTEC to Google now, they see a lot of what was true in the 1930s or the 1970s. It almost sounds like you need an ointment to cure it too. Mm. Ooh, I've got some oak tech. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you're the marketing guy. What's our brand name? Well, there's lots of different, I think it's different strokes for different folks, right? Uh, for some engineering guys, the moment we start describing OTEC, they're like, it's a heat pump in the ocean. Okay. For other guys, it's, it's ocean geothermal or geothermal without the drilling. But if you say that to a geothermal guy, he's like, well, that's not strictly, you know, you're not actually using the earth's kind of crust. You're just using the ocean. So, so that's lame. So yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think, um, the urban outfitter dude that can sell Victoria Beckham <laughs> dresses to the world. Come on, man. We need to hear it. I'll tell you what, we'll keep going on this. Yeah. But by the end of the podcast, I want a cool name. Okay. All right. So. OTEC. So we know this works because the Cubans did it. We know it works because they did it in Hawaii. Where's the state of the science these days? And are other people doing it besides you? Yeah, I would caveat that we know it works because of what's happened in Hawaii. We missed a, a chapter in the, in the development that post Reagan in, in kind of 2010 onwards, there was an OTEC renaissance. This is where Lockheed Martin are involved now. Um, you've got Mackay Ocean Engineering um, developing the OTEC Tower that 
if you type in OTEC into Google today, that's probably what most people are going to see. Um, you've got uh, the Okinawa government in one of the southern prefectures of Japan on Kumajima Island developing a quite similar looking OTEC power plant. These these systems being grid connected in 2013 and 2015, respectively, these are the milestones kind of signaling that net power is possible using OTEC. Now, it's also highlighted some challenges. It's highlighted some advancements that are needed in heat exchanger technology um, with biofouling and seawater corrosion. That was something that was that needed to be solved in 2015 when these plants came online. That's something that's solved today. There's also the kind of there's the two different paths of whether you're whether you're going for OTEC on land, whether you're going for OTEC offshore, and that's something that we we should perhaps just quickly dive into. Yeah, lay it on me. So if we're doing OTEC on land, I've got to run these cold and warm water pipes down the seabed all the way until I can get my my delta t my temperature difference oh i got you we like so this so where you're going with this is houston texas not going to be a great place because the gulf of mexico goes forever and you can go out miles and it's 10 feet deep got it that's right so that pipe is the most expensive and technically challenging component of a an otec system so to be a fit to be cost effective you really need to be with today's with where the technology is at now about four kilometers offshore. That's really the max of where your, of, of the distance your pipe can be to have a, an economic project. But kind of the pill that we're taking is going offshore because instead of having that four kilometer pipe, we only need a pipe that goes down to one kilometer. So we're reducing the most expensive, technically challenging component of the system by around 75%. And instead of running all that water back to shore, we're using the same offshore cable that floating wind and you know, offshore energy has been de-risking for, for some time now. Gotcha. Gotcha. So that makes sense to me. So in effect, we have a floating platform of some sort that you're doing. Have you built one of these yet? Have you drawn sketches for one of these? Where do, you, where do you stand on? So we're kind of between the preliminary and detailed design phase at the moment. So we, whilst we haven't built one, there have been OTEC demonstrations on barges that have happened in Hawaii and, and in South Korea. But no one's approached this with a commercial view of how am I going to recoup my investment in the platform? So we're the first really to to be taking this on. So it involves having a power purchase agreement or a PPA with an off-taker. It involves having a design that insurers will look at and can give you the, the necessary cover of a, of a multi-million dollar platform that's sitting in the ocean generating power. Give me, give me some sort of and you can you can say this is where we're going to be when we build our 15th one or you can just say our original one we have planned but just some idea how much does one of these cost how much in the way of power can you make any idea of what it's going to yeah. cost to generate power 
Just some sort of scaling here. Yeah, yeah, of course. I, yeah, I got no clue. So after our first one, which is going to be, you know, over-engineered and have some sure. bloat of, engi- yeah. of, of engineering time, when we're then cookie-cuttering that first one, we're around 20, the early $20 million per platform. Now, people are hearing that number and uh, seeing that it's a one and a half megawatt system. And they're thinking, are you crazy? That is so expensive. But when you consider that this is baseload power generating with an uptime of like 97%, actually, when you compare it to solar and wind, it's sort of actually the equivalent of five megawatts of solar or 10 megawatts of wind based on the uh, output, the energy output. Oh, gotcha. Because we can put solar or wind there, but we're going to have to have a hydrocarbon yeah. backup system of some sort. Yeah. So you've got each barge giving you 12,000 megawatt hours a year. And these barges are designed, thanks to oil and gas, um, to last a lot longer and than other renewables. And they're not requiring any precious minerals that are going to have kids diving into mines in the in Congo. So I think there's a, there's a lot of um, attributes this technology has that solves the challenges uh, that does what we need to do with renewable energy, but uses the huge base of offshore engineering skills that we've brought up. Because it seems like a lot of technologies, they're obsessed with land. And I understand that using terrestrial land takes out a huge amount of risk on your renewable energy project. But if you're somewhere that's very limited on land, whether that's a city, a coastal city, or a tropical <laughs> island, then you're really hamstrung by only having the option to deploy onshore renewables. And this is a solution for that. So, okay, so 20 million bucks, be cost competitive because it's baseload power. What happens when a storm shows up? Do you just take the platform away and the island sits there without power? How does that? How does that work? So we do the same things that offshore energy does. Uh, we design our platforms based on the hundred or or even thousand year return period. So these are the, the you look at the the meteorological conditions of your location, uh, wave heights, wind speeds, current speeds, and those are kind of relevant inputs into into your design criteria. So the, this barge design that we're starting with isn't the design that we would use for, say, a Caribbean island. The Caribbean island, we're going to need a bigger system. We're going to be experiencing 20, maybe even 30-meter wave heights. We're going to be experiencing some intense wind speeds. But thankfully, oil and gas has been dealing with a lot of these already, whether it's in the Gulf of Mexico or... <coughs> Excuse me. Bless so you. Oil and gas have been dealing with a lot of these things already, whether it's in the Gulf of Mexico or um, out in Norway. They get, it may not be a hurricane, but they get some insane wind speeds up in that part of the... The North Sea's nasty. I mean, in terms of an environment to operate yeah. in. So yeah. we're building on all of this. And we have a, a Horizon Europe uh, grant. We've designed a kind of cylindrical hull for the more extreme weather conditions. And we're validating this to really a 30-meter 
wave height. So we've done all the simulations. Um, our engineering team are actually in the Canary Islands right now in, in Tenerife. We've just signed the contract for our first, uh, our first steel order. We bought steel. That's cool, right? Yeah, I, um, selling cool. Victoria Beckham dresses and now buying now tons of steel. steel. Yeah. Nice. That's all awesome. Up. So, so you've, now that you've bought steel, when do we get to go tour it with a, uh, with a camera and see it actually producing uh, electricity? So the first step is, is to do a structural test. So it's much lower risk to do this in the water without energy generating equipment. So this is going to be a one to five scale system. It's going to still, it's going to be still about uh, nine meters in diameter, the, the hull. And we're going to build that with a, a model riser or, or cold water pipe um, connection. And because of the, the rules of grants, we had to do this in EU waters, um, but there's not really an ideal place um, around the Mediterranean or North Sea that we wanted to do this. But then we realized, hey, there's the Canary Islands and they're repairing oil and gas assets all the time. So if you want to do something offshore, follow where oil and gas is. So we headed out there, we found some partners um, and we, yeah, we put this consortium together. We got three and a half million uh, euros from Horizon Europe to de-risk a tropical storm-proof OTEC structure. And that'll be installed in April oh, of this cool. year, of next year, sorry. Cool. So what does that test kind of tell us and then how far are we from actually powering, you know, the jacuzzi at a resort? Yeah, so we have, we have two projects going in, in parallel. As I mentioned, we have the, the cylindrical hull with a reduced girth down to around one to five uh, scale system. That's proving out how we deal with tropical storms. But at the same time, we know we can get electrons in the grid without needing to be in a tropical storm zone. So in, in, in parallel, we're developing our first project in Sartome and Principe, which is the most beautiful tropical island that you've only just heard of. Or yeah, I was about to say I'm typical American, huh? Where is that? <laughs> Do you want to point to on a map? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's, it's in the Gulf of Guinea, which is, I guess, you, some people call it the armpit of Africa, I think. So where you've okay. got this bulge, you follow the coast round to kind of Nigeria or Cameroon, and you go about a thousand kilometers out into the ocean, you've got the highest concentration of endemic species found anywhere in the world and a quarter of a million Sartomeans living. Um, they're mostly diesel powered. They have around 30 megawatts of installed capacity. There's a bit of hydro, um, but I think 18 megawatts of diesel is what's powering their islands. And they can only recover the cost of about half half of the tariff rate. So our angle here is using climate finance and grants and subsidies to get the first one off of the ground and, and solve as, you know, as many problems as possible with this first system. And then electrons in the grid in Sartome, the structural system in the Canary Islands is, is validating our hypotheses. And then we can go and address the Caribbean, which is the really exciting project pipeline. Yeah, exactly. I, th I think one of the things we get spoiled with in America, and I'm sure you get spoiled with here in London, is you know the grid's 99.9% .9 reliable, right? I mean, it 
you get a bad storm every once in a while. It glitches here and there. You talk to someone from Costa Rica, pick any of Panama, and their electricity's down like half the time. And uh, so I think, you know, one, being able to deliver electricity to people is really cool. Being able to give them electricity that runs 97% of the time, holy cow. And that's what also differentiates OTEC is the grid stability aspects. They're really attractive. There's not a small island developing state that doesn't have rolling blackouts. Maybe, maybe Cabo Verde, um, but m m for the most part, if you go out to one of these islands, they're load shedding around 5.30, everything's off, resort diesel generator kicks in. And it's just, it's just not, not economical. And it really hinders the, you know, the development of businesses, the ability to keep fish cool. So they, they've been a lot of uh, developers or development agencies come into these islands with an agenda that we want to decarbonize you, but it's got to be solar. Yeah. And these projects just don't get off the ground because when they look at the practicality of putting as much solar as someone sitting in, you know, Austria thinks is what these islands need, it, it, it just doesn't go anywhere. And I've, I've said, if our message to the folks in energy poverty in the world is, you know, in effect, let them eat cake, because that's kind of what it is. Let them if, eat solar panels. Let them eat solar panels. Yeah, let them eat wind. Uh, to the extent we're doing that, that's going to have a really bad effect on the world. And I mean, shots could be fired over that. I don't mean to say that be macabre or anything, but it's true. They absolutely, it absolutely yeah. will. The first, you know, if there's energy is governments providing energy for the people is one of the number one, the number one things that keeps stability, especially, especially on these islands. And it's interesting, you, you know, the reference you made there, I was in, uh, Fiji a couple of months ago on a on a mission, and I was just hearing some people talk about the the, the cheap solar they're getting from China. And uh, on the surface, great, we've got cheap solar from China, um, but and batteries, and these things aren't lasting a couple of years. You're having a credible, a bankable renewable energy project. You need consistency for at the minimum ten, but. 15, 20 years, you need to be aiming for that to have reliable infrastructure. If you're giving people these kind of pieces of shit that are going to conk out after three years, then it's just a PR exercise. It's, it's not, there's no intent to actually solve problems. Yeah. I mean, they talk about projects put in and you show up two years later and they're just not working. And yeah, uh, yeah that's not going to be good either. You heard about this in water actually. And I, I think I may have read about this Um in abundance that, you know, there's these really, you often get white Americans or Europeans parachuting in for a, uh, you know, a, a photo shoot to install a water pump. Um, and then you kind of check back there in a couple of months and you, no spare parts were left for repairs to be made. And no it's just a clunk of No one knows how shit. to repair it. Yeah, it, exactly. They didn't. So what, well, what we're finding very helpful is working with the United Nations, particularly the United Nations Industrial Development Organization, or UNIDO, and SIDSDOC, which is the only UN-recognized organization 
for small islands, energy security, and climate resiliency challenges. So anytime that we're having conversations about solutions for islands, there's always an island person in the room, in the conversation. When we're going out to these markets, we're running workshops with marginalized groups, with, with, the, with the civil service, because when a government changes, you get new politicians, but those people running, keeping the lights on, keeping the water running, actually doing the work, those guys don't tend to change. So we, we're really lucky to have these people around us. All right, real cool, uh, quick, because we're doing we're recording this podcast, I believe, uh, December twelfth. Because you just got back into town, where were you? And tell me some, tell me what happened there. So uh, I was at COP twenty eight in Dubai in the which, UAE. Which private plane did you take over? I, I was on Al Gore's. Yeah, yeah, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Did no. you see? Did you see the photos of the private planes? I think they were in Germany and they were frozen to the tarmac. I did. And yes. they were all lined up together. Yeah, it's brilliant. Go to uh, Dubai. So, anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, whenever there's a Davos or a World Economic Forum, it smacks of hypocrisy. Just a little. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, no, I was, I, I went to Dubai on my, in my economy class seat on the British Airways Flight 107 from Heathrow. <laughs> um, I had a week there and, uh, there's kind of, I've got positive and negatives uh, to take away both on a, you know, a selfish or self-interested level and also a, a macro one. Um, the, the, firstly, the scale of everything there was insane. It, it made the UK hosting COP26 look a bit like a school science project. Really? Yeah. The scale, the scale was something, really something else. Um, what was incredible for us was our engagement with island ministers. And we had an event with uh, Tuvalu, Dominica, Sartome and Principe. I'm forgetting a couple of islands, St. Vincent and the Grenadines. And, you know, we had Grenada, Antigua and Barbuda. We, we, we had a full suite almost of, of Caribbean islands uh, in a room, all recognizing that ocean energy is the... It's, it's the frontier for them to be able to get renewable and reliable uh, energy. So that was really great. And uh, shout out to uh, Dr. Vince Henderson, the minister of, uh, you're going to have to cut that bit because I'm not going to be able to, <laughs> I'm gonna, because I'm going to, I'm going to butcher his title, but yeah. So shout out to uh, minister Dr. Vince Henderson of Dominica, because he was on stage in one of the main halls. And not only is he saying our, our islands need ocean energy and OTEC, he's saying you need to go out there and support global OTEC and, and, and help them on their mission. So it was really cool to get name checked there. Nice. That's a shout out. That's yeah. a strong celebrity it's shout good. out too. It's close to nimble fatty, but yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but on the negative side, I mean, you know, we have, I'm following the, the negotiations today. Um, you know, there's, I think there's a bit of, uh, bad faith going on with the, with the involvement of, uh, of the oil and gas majors, but also OPEC, um, in frustrating what a lot of the world wants to see in this 
in this text. And I'm, I don't, I'm not in the detail. I have no background as a negotiator. So I have, I'm speaking from a very limited experience pool on that, but certainly where we are today, it's looking pretty daunting. And now Azerbaijan is lined up to host COP29. It probably feels a bit the same of, uh, of what the world can expect next year, but we'll see. Yeah. I mean, it, it's tough because the issue I really have, you know, and look, I'll, I'll say it, I'm a homer for the oil and gas business. And I think literally you start talking top three to five inventions that have advanced man, you know, mankind. Where do you start talking? I mean, wheel, fire, hydrocarbons absolutely in, in terms of pushing it the the problem i always have with the response back is you need to be intellectually honest and say hey if we make energy more expensive today people die you know if we make energy more expensive there's not cheap fertilizer to grow crops etc but that's okay because we don't want deaths from climate change in 100 years Frame the de debate more intellectually honest just other than oh these bad guys the majors we'd all have clean energy if it weren't for those guys because uh and, and and that's why i love being in the room with with a lot of island people because they're hugely practical and they're talking about natural gas as a transition as a transition piece so that you know there's there isn't this you know oh god anyone in oil and gas is the energy in those rooms far from it uh, but we have the technology today for these countries that don't have their own resources traditionally, i.e. hydrocarbons, to be able to use their environment, what they've been given or what God's given them, to, to actually not need to pay a massive premium to take something from one side of the world to a, another. So I think where my, you know, I know we, uh, we're going to need oil and gas for the rest of my life to have all of the things that we, um, that we enjoy and that we're used to. And there are going to be some and innovations. To, to, to your point, that the billion that don't have it are entitled to. Absolutely. I mean, and they should get that. Yeah. So, yeah. I just don't want to hear from someone in, you know, in, a, in a nylon uh, jacket holding a placard saying, just stop oil, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> we're always sitting around going, who's going to tell them? <laughs> who's going to tell them? <laughs> Dude, this was cool to come on. Now- when we have a plant up and running, can I show up with camera crew? We can, we can you'll tour us around the platform right. and all that. Yeah, 2025. We see you in Sartome and Principe, probably around this time. That sounds awesome. Cool. Awesome. Appreciate it again, you doing this. Thank you very much. Let's go for a beer. Do it. Okay. Anything we should have covered? That was a little cheesy at the end, but whatever. Oh, no, I uh, any anything we should have covered that we didn't? I didn't really come in with an agenda of things to no, cover. I just no, came for I was a chat. just kind of like interested asking questions. So yeah, cool. no, I, and th I I really liked how you kept on kept on track at the beginning when you know I can deviate quite a lot on the on, well, on the actually, origin story. I was but... actually flat out interested. In Good, it. it's yeah. like you know how's a dude at Urban Outfitters decide <laughs> they want to go save the world? You know that stuff's interesting to me. <laughs> <laughs>